strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please, have a seat. Any of the chairs, no restrictions. That's all been sorted out. I'd like to introduce my valet here, uh, Wilkinson. He reads any directly quoted material we use. How do you do? You know, sometimes I wish this were all on video, so listeners could see something of the environs. They hear library and probably just think of a bunch of books, but there's so much more to the collections. Uh, quite a lot of curios to dust, eh, Wilkinson? Indeed, and each with its own particular dusting instructions. Well, this week we have a new item. A bit of a mascot for the episode, a mummified cat from the necropolis of Saqqara. It was just given to me last month and prompted the idea for our topic tonight. It looks very much at home here. Yes, I wish the listeners could see him. Uh, how would you describe him? Well, standing erect, tightly wrapped. Um, no, no, his face. It strikes me as somehow unsettled. His expression. Does he seem content to you? Happily content? Well, no. More unsettled, as you say. Maybe let down? With himself or others? Perhaps himself. As if he's not lived up to his potential. And his nose is chipped. There could have been more. It might have gone one way. But then it didn't. Like that? Yes. I could see that as if he were somehow on a path that he himself never chose. And now he's here. We talked about leaving him a small offering. Uh, some of the mice I was complaining about a few weeks ago, but Wilkinson never managed to catch any. I did set traps. You know, he was a gift from my good friend Paul Kudinaris, a specialist in saintly relics and feline history. Yeah, I was thinking of having Paul on as a guest, actually. Though we don't really have guests, I suppose if there were an overwhelming outcry, people can be demanding like that. If he came by, he might ask for the cat back. I believe I have it marked as a lone item and monthly dusting, soft as brush. Lone? Really? Let me see that sheet. Charitable donation, and uh, bi-monthly, softest brush. Uh, only lateral strokes, never lengthwise. It could fray the bandages. Of course, sir. He seems happier already, doesn't he? His eyes are dead, but it's as if blindness has heightened his remaining senses. His ears do look alert. Good, so uh, he'll enjoy our stories. All right, I think we're ready. Episode 10, Victorian Mummies. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and our topic is generally the intertwining of folklore, history, and the horror genre, particularly classic literature and films. I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics that I'm researching for a future project. The show is supported solely by the generosity of Patreon donors. I'll have more information on that and the little extras Patreon donors get, uh, as well as uh, social media information at the end of the show. I should announce that we're delivering a bit longer show with this, our 
10th episode, which will mark the end of our first season. Uh, Wilkinson and I will be taking a break through September in order to prepare new shows coming back in October, which will begin our fall and winter season with Halloween, the Krampus, and all the darker seasonal folklore. If you haven't subscribed, I suggest you do so now so you'll know as soon as the new show is up. Uh, Patreon members will continue to receive their extras throughout September. And a couple disclaimers before I begin. The folklore in this episode is more of the urban legend variety than that of the old agrarian world. And also, uh, despite the title, uh, we'll be including a fair amount of material from the Edwardian period and a bit beyond. Uh, Victorian mummies just seemed a bit catchier, I suppose. There's nothing on earth like the mummy. Come to the altar of Anubis. The guide of the dead. We'll start things out with a visit to a Victorian mummy factory. You see, the demand for mummies as collector's items for fashionable homes was so great that Egypt's supply eventually ended up supplemented by the manufacture of forgeries. An article describing this phenomenon from a uh, March 1889 issue of Philadelphia's The Times begins with an account of counterfeit mummies discovered in 1792 among the specimens displayed in the British Museum. One was made of plaster, ingeniously modeled to represent a human being. Some sort of parchment had been stretched over the face, and this gave the shrunken appearance of the real mummy. And another... Simply a bundle of rags, compressed into the shape of a human being. The spine was formed of what appeared to be a broomstick. Eventually, six forgeries were uncovered in the museum. By 1834, the Egyptologist Thomas Joseph Pettigrew had located a veritable factory for such forgeries on Egypt's Ethiopian border. Two years later, the German antiquarian Sanus Madden found another facility near Kurna. Here, they went one better than the plaster and parchment creations. In a letter to his daughter, quoted in the Times, Madden writes... They were masters of a mysterious art which enabled them to give a corpse that had been a corpse for only a week the shriveled and shrunken appearance of a body that had been embalmed for centuries. A dead man was brought into the shop on Friday. I think the Arabs paid three shillings for him. He was put on the slab and the entrails removed. The brain was drawn through the nostrils in precisely the same manner as Herodotus describes. Then the corpse was thrown rudely into the large vat of brine. After remaining for a period of 15 days, it was removed and hung by the heels from a rafter, and a small brazier was put under the head, filled with some sort of sweet-smelling wood, and fired. After this, all the doors closed, and the corpse was smoked like a ham. In 10 hours, this operation was completed, and I beheld a most remarkable change. The body had turned almost black. It was shrunken, fully one-third. The features were pinched like those of a mummy, and it bore the appearance of great age. This story was corroborated by George Warwick, who visited the thriving facility in 1841, and was shown 50 newly manufactured mummies destined for American collectors. By 1869, the entrepreneurs had abandoned their factory for a new position in Paris as brokers for another, even larger mummy factory somewhere else in Egypt. After the 1862 death of Victoria's consort Albert, the widowed queen led her country into a 40-year period of mourning, during which Great Britain's obsession with death ritual quite naturally drew comparisons with that of the ancient Egyptians. A nicely concrete example of this is the construction in 1838 of a section of London's Highgate Cemetery dubbed Egyptian Avenue, an area famous for its exotic archway, lotus-decorated columns, and obelisks. I'll have some photos of that online. Uh, another historically themed bit of architecture, 
the Egyptian Hall near Piccadilly Circus in 1821 became the site for a vast reconstruction of the tomb of Seti I, sometimes called Belzoni's tomb, after Giovanni Belzoni, an Italian circus performer and impresario turned archaeologist. The 1821 exhibition, which he coordinated, was a sensation, attended by some 2,000 people on its opening day. It also featured Britain's first public mummy unwrapping. Now, by the 1830s and up through the 1840s, mummy unwrappings became quite the rage. Uh, hosted by museums and institutions of learning, they were also social events held at the homes of the curious and well-to-do. The chief proponent of this uh, fashionable diversion was uh, Thomas Joseph Pettigrew, or Mummy Pettigrew, as he came to be called. He began his career as a well-connected surgeon and professor of anatomy at London's Charing Cross Hospital, but after a corruption scandal there, he reinvented himself as an antiquarian specializing in Egypt, eventually publishing in 1834 his landmark study, History of Egyptian Mummies. Pettigrew was also responsible for promoting the sale of so-called mummy wheat, seeds, peas, and flower bulbs allegedly found within the wrappings or even clutched in the withered hands of mummies, all of which were said to miraculously germinate after millennia in the tomb, providing some sort of a wistful symbol of hope and rejuvenation, I suppose. A particularly noteworthy fan of Pettigrew's mummy ballyhoo was the 10th Duke of Hamilton, who in 1866, according to his final wishes, himself became a mummy. Upon his death, the Scottish Duke was mummified by Pettigrew according to historical techniques and laid within a sarcophagus of the Ptolemaic period, purchased some 30 years earlier. A bit of custom work was required to chisel out the interior of the coffin, previously accommodating the body of a female of substantially less girth than the well-fed duke. Mummy unwrapping parties weren't exclusive to Great Britain. For instance, I happened to find in a Philadelphia paper from 1850 notification of 300 tickets at $5 each available for an unwrapping in Boston. And I found this account uh, written by the French romantic author and poet Théophile Gautier, who observed a public unwrapping under quite gothic circumstances in 1857. It so happened that a sudden storm was lashing the windows with heavy drops of rain that rattled like hail. Pale lightnings illumined on the shelves of the cupboards the old yellowed skulls and the grimacing death's heads of the anthropological museum, while the low rolling of thunder formed an accompaniment to the waltz of Neskins, the daughter of Horus and Ruah, as she pirouetted in the impatient hands of those who were unwrapping her. The mummy was visibly growing smaller in size, and its slender form showed more and more plainly under its diminishing wrappings. The face was covered with a mask, which, with some effort, was removed. Under the pressure of the chisel, a portion of the mummy gave way, and two white eyes with great black pupils shone with fictitious life between brown eyelids. They were enameled eyes, such as it was customary to insert in carefully prepared mummies. The clear, fixed glance gazing out of the dead face produced a terrifying effect. The body seemed to behold with disdainful surprise the living beings that moved around it. The eyebrows showed quite plainly upon the orbit, hollowed by the sinking of the flesh. The nose had been turned down to conceal the incision through which the brain had been drawn from the skull, and a leaf of gold had been placed on the mouth as the seal of eternal silence. Much of early Egyptology belongs to the French, thanks to Napoleon's invasion of the country in 1798. 54 scholars accompanied the troops, bringing back stories, images, and artifacts, igniting the first wave of Western Egyptomania. 
With a second wave prompted by the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869 and Verdi's Egyptian opera Aida, which premiered in 1871 in Cairo, with sets designed by prominent Egyptologist Francois Mariette. French artists such as Delacroix and Ingres helped shape Western fantasies of Egypt and the Middle East with paintings of harems populated by lounging half-naked beauties, uh, a subject enthusiastically embraced by many imitators and eventually by members of the French Orientalist Painting Society founded in 1893. And all of this trickled down further into uh, photography and the so-called French postcards, which became a popular proto-pornography of the Victorian age. So, this sets the stage for the next theme we'll examine, namely the weird eroticizing bent of many Victorian mummy stories. The seductive embodiment of an avenging ancient evil. Pharaoh's curse. Théophile Gautier, whom we just heard describing a mummy unwrapping, himself composed more than one mummy story associating mummies with erotic attraction. Uh, one from 1858 is literally called The Romance of the Mummy and tells the story of the doomed love between the daughter of an Egyptian priest and a Jewish slave. However, the tale is framed within a second love story that of an English archaeologist who, like the slave, falls under the spell of the princess while translating her story from a papyrus discovered in her tomb. The second, written in 1863, is a short story with more gothic quality called The Mummy's Foot. It begins with the narrator visiting an antique shop where he purchases a mummified female foot said to have belonged to a princess. In the story, the narrator slips into a dreamlike state where he witnesses the foot hop from his desk and uh, he allows it to rejoin itself to the princess who has mysteriously appeared in his room. In gratitude, she leaves a small figurine on his desk and tells him he must meet her father, the pharaoh, who will provide him with a greater reward. When the princess's father asks our narrator, uh, what reward he might desire, he is emboldened to ask for the princess's hand in marriage as he finds her to be the purest Egyptian type of perfect beauty. The pharaoh, however, denies his wish, uh, stating that he would prefer a suitor of a more suitable age, uh, something over 2,000, he suggests. It's all just a dream, of course, yet somehow when he awakens, the foot has disappeared, and in its place, a small figurine of Isis. When it comes to this theme of mortal men falling under the erotic spell of ancient mummies, a particularly relevant book by a particularly important author, in our case, is The Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. Published in 1903, the book is a sort of a gothic follow-up, in a sense, to the author's Dracula, but it was uh, the subject of, uh, let's say, very mixed reviews. Soon it was all but forgotten, only relatively recently rediscovered in the wake of Dracula scholarship that arose in the 1960s. The story revolves around the mummy of Terra, an ancient Egyptian queen and sorceress. This mummy is owned by the uh, Egyptologist Abel Trelawney. Things begin happening rather quickly in the first pages as a young lawyer, Malcolm Ross, is summoned by Trelawney's daughter, Margaret, with whom he's in love, um, to her uh, father's study. The Egyptologist has been discovered, collapsed amid his relics and in a cataleptic state. His wrist is gruesomely mauled and suspicion falls on Margaret's cat, though she swears the animal has never entered the room. Along with the mummy of terror herself and her severed hand kept in a locked chest to protect the precious jewel of seven stars set in a ring on the mummy's hand, we also learn that Trelawney's collection contains the mummy of a cat once kept by Terra. Trelawney eventually arises from his trance, though 
not before some other otherworldly threats manifest, and a strange change comes over Margaret Talani, who shows some supernatural bond with the long-dead queen. Eventually, an archaeologist colleague of Trelawney shows up with further funerary items from Terra's tomb, including seven lamps, and it's revealed that these seven lamps, or stars, as in the title, are to be used in what Trelawney calls the Great Experiment. This is an attempt to awaken and connect with the spirit of the ancient sorceress and thereby allow Trelawney access to the astral plane. For the experiment, the party relocates to another mansion under which conveniently lies a cave where the ritual can be performed in a setting uh, more closely approximating Terra's tomb. Meanwhile, Margaret's behavior becomes more erratic, with Stoker dropping further hints that she is a reincarnation of the Egyptian queen. As a warm-up to the ritual, the team unwraps the mummified cat, making a discovery suggesting another supernatural mischief. His mouth and his claws were smeared with the dry, red stains of recent blood. The great experiment itself begins with the unwrapping of the mummy of Terra, the scene is narrated by Malcolm. We all stood awed at the beauty of the figure, which, save for the face cloth, would now lay completely nude before us. Mr. Trelawney bent over, and with hands that trembled slightly, raised this linen cloth. And as he stood back, and the whole glorious beauty of the queen was revealed, I felt a rush of shame sweep over me. It was not right that we should be there, gazing with irreverent eyes on such unclad beauty. It was indecent, it was almost sacrilegious, and yet the white wonder of that beautiful form was something to dream of. It was not like death at all, it was like a statue carven in ivory by the hand of a proximities. The scene takes on a particularly unsavory feel as it's observed how the nude Tara is a twin to Malcolm's love interest, Margaret, who grows increasingly uncomfortable with the whole unseemly affair. There's a bit more weird necrophilic fawning over the mummy before the crux of the ritual, the lighting of the seven lamps, which brings us back to more familiar gothic territory with blasts of wind throwing open windows and other eerie phenomena. I won't entirely spoil the story lest you want to read it, though it is a bit of a slog. For those with less literary patience, there are also film adaptations of variable fidelity to the original. Uh, 1971's uh, Hammer production, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, for 4,000 years. She has been and then in and 1988, and we mustn't forget the highly forgettable 1998 straight to video. Bram Stoker's The Mummy. A beautiful yet centuries-old priestess of Isis romantically attracting mortal men can also be found in the 1887 novel She by H. Ryder Haggard, writer of uh, colonialist adventure novels of the type much maligned today but quite popular at the time. Uh, called She Who Must Be Obeyed by Her People, a lost race living in underground caverns in Africa, this supernatural and supernaturally beautiful being is discovered by a trio of brave English adventurers. Her figure, as it first appears, is described. Not only the body, but also the face was wrapped up in a soft, white, gauzy material in such a way as, at first sight, to remind me almost forcibly of a corpse in its grave clothes. I could, however, clearly distinguish that the swathed, mummy-like form beneath me was that of a tall and lovely woman. We later learn that she is thus swathed to, to protect the men around her from being driven mad by her beauty. 
As it turns out, one of the English trio, she believes, is the reincarnation of an ancient love for whom she has waited for centuries. And from there, things get complicated. Uh, the novel was adapted to film in 1935 by Marion C. Cooper, director of King Kong, and perhaps uh, somewhat less successfully in a 1965 Hammer production featuring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. But who are you? She. She who must be obeyed. Here burns the flame light. Arthur Conan Doyle also wrote an 1890 story exploring this uh, theme, uh, the love of an undying Egyptian and a mummy. Uh, it's called The Ring of Thoth, and we'll look at it shortly in the context of early mummy horror films. Like H. Ryder Haggard, who claimed to recall memories of past lives in Egypt, South Africa, and Iceland, Doyle held some supernatural beliefs relevant to our topic. Um, those familiar with Doyle's belief in the faked Cottingley fairy photos of the 1920s may not be surprised to learn that Doyle also accepted the notion of ancient Egyptian curses attached to tombs and mummies. When his friend and collaborator on The Hound of the Baskervilles, that is, uh, Bertram Fletcher Robinson, contracted typhoid fever and died suddenly at the age of 35, Doyle connected it with Robinson's investigation of a curse associated with a uh, mummy purchased by one Walter Ingram, son of the founder of the Illustrated London News. Now, according to this story of this Ingram mummy or curse, uh, as it's colorfully narrated in an 1896 edition of the Strand magazine. While taking part in military operations in Egypt, Ingram had purchased the mummy and had it shipped back to England, where a scholar from the British Museum translating hieroglyphics on the sarcophagus was said to have found a curse upon grave robbers, particularly foreigners, declaring they would meet a violent end, and their mangled bodies would be carried down by a rush of waters to the sea. So as it turns out, not long after making his purchase, Ingram, while elephant hunting in Somaliland, was trampled to death by one of the beasts. His mangled body was provisionally buried, but when the family returned to move it, heavy rains had eroded the land, washing the corpse loose and into a nearby river where it was presumably forever lost. Of his friend Robinson's sudden death by typhoid after investigating this colorful tale, Doyle wrote, That is the way in which the elementals guarding the mummy might act. I warned him against concerning himself with the mummy. I told him he was tempting fate by pursuing his inquiries, but he was fascinated and could not desist. Mister? Yes? Can you tell me where King Toot and Come-In's tomb is? <laughs> Why, tut-tut-tut, my boy. You mean King tut on commons too. Ah, that's the man. Do you know anything about him? Do I know anything about him? Well, just you listen to me. In old King Tut-Tut-Tut-Uncommon's day beneath the Since it's already been much discussed elsewhere, we won't really be going into the alleged curse on King Tut's tomb, which, like, possible exaggerations or embroiderings of the Ingram story it may put us in the realm of uh, urban legend. But Doyle also enthusiastically commented on the Tut curse. It might be a dangerous thing to dig up these old graves. One does not know what elements existed in those days and how long these elements existed or what might be their force. The Egyptians knew a great deal more about these things than we do. If they could have put these elements on guard over their dead bodies, they certainly would have done so. One theory for the deaths associated with the tomb's opening was the release of long dormant fungus spores, which uh, Doyle speculated might have been the form his elementals assumed, uh, placed there, in fact, intentionally by the authors of the curse. 
though we may think of Doyle, particularly as the creator of Sherlock Holmes, as a, a man of rationalistic disposition, and indeed think of Victorian and Edwardian culture generally as very triumphalist in regard to science and its ability to confront all challenges, uh, there was also an undeniable reactionary tendency of the period to embrace many varieties of romantic and magical thinking. But we see it in the rise of theosophy under Madame Blavatsky and in that era's general proliferation of esoteric groups collectively referred to as the occult revival. It was also quite trendy among creative types to be allied with an occult group. Uh, chief among these, particularly in Britain, would be the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, Doyle was invited to join in 1898, but eventually dismissed the proceedings as queer and disagreeable. However, he would have been in good company as membership included the writers W.B. Yeats, uh, Algernon Blackwood, Arthur Machen, who we mentioned in our episode, The Great God Pan, and uh, possibly also Sachs Romer, H. Ryder Haggard, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Bram Stoker. Alistair Crowley was also a member, though we, uh, he was eventually booted out. The Order's rituals uh, drew from a mixture of uh, Hebrew Kabbalah, ancient Greek philosophy, the 16th century magic of John Dee, Rosicrucian teachings, and particularly Egyptian mythology. The Edinburgh Temple, uh, to which Doyle had been invited, for instance, happened to be named after the Egyptian god Amun-Ra. Uh, the Golden Dawn neophyte initiation enacted the death and resurrection of Osiris, a motif referenced in many of their rituals. Much use was made of Egyptian set dressing and wardrobe, and uh, you can see on the website an image uh, from 1910 depicting uh, Crowley in ritual pharaonic garb. By the way, you've been hearing some recordings of Golden Dawn rituals in the background. Uh, last is uh, the Order's Invocation of Thoth, uh, voiced by Israel Regardi, an occultist and member of the uh, Stella Matutina, a successor to the Golden Dawn. I invoke Naruti, the Lord of Wisdom and of Consciousness, the God that cometh forth from the veil. The Hermetic in the group's name refers to Hermes, the Greek equivalent of the Egyptian god Thoth, or Tote, as occasionally some stickler will tell you, though I suspect that's an imitation of early German archaeologist pronunciation. Um, anyway, both gods uh, were gods of writing and wisdom, and in Thoth's case, uh, he was the author of spells in the Book of the Dead and uh, aided Isis in her resurrection of Osiris. Hermes Thoth is of particular importance generally in Western occult tradition uh, embodied in the Hermetica or Corpus Hermeticum a collection of works that include the Emerald Tablet, uh, supposedly uh, found in an Egyptian tomb by Alexander the Great. The Emerald Tablet, for instance, gives us the principle, as above, so below, attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, uh, meaning thrice great Hermes. It was probably actually written by an Arab philosopher between the 6th and 8th century. and. Uh, it presents a mixture of Greek, uh, Kabbalistic, and Persian philosophies. It explores the relationships, uh, interactions, and magical, astrological associations of the four elements in a way that served uh, as a basis for centuries of alchemical pursuits. While originally embraced by church fathers, such as St. Augustus, it was eventually rejected, accounting for its hidden, uh, suppressed, or that is literally occult status. By the 1700s, the Freemasons, who often claimed a heritage that extended back to the stone workers of the pyramids, uh, were also embracing Egyptian imagery, such as the eye in the pyramid, and images taken up uh, in Masonic-inspired works, such as Mozart's The Magic Flute. Further shaping these occult bodies is Jean Terrasson's 1731 novel, 
Life of Sethos, a work of fiction actually that presented itself as taken from the text of an ancient papyrus. Its recounting of the details of a secret initiation into a cult of Isis served as the basis for not only the initiatory system in Freemasonry, but for other occult orders that followed a Masonic model, such as the Golden Dawn. By the late 1700s, tarot cards also came into use, popularized as uh, representations of the so-called Book of Thoth, although we don't know which book that would necessarily mean. Uh, it's the same name that Crowley gave to a deck of uh, tarot cards of his own design. Crowley, incidentally, also claimed that the foundational document of his uh, religion of Thelema, the Book of the Law, had been dictated to him while in Egypt in 1904 by the spirit Iwas, a representative of the child god Horus. Are ancient curses real? Who shall defile the temples of the ancient gods? A cruel and violent death. Let me who seek to disturb the eternal peace and sleep of the royal one beware. Eternal punishment. cannot run away from the curse of the mummy's tomb. But back to mummy curses. We had a little tale involving a foot, so. How about a story of a mummified hand? This one takes us all the way from Victorian England to 1930s Hollywood, where we have an appointment with uh, Boris Karloff and encounters with... Mummies that come back to life after 3,000 years. But back to the 1890s, uh, when the Irish occultist William John Warner was supposedly given the gift of a mummified hand. Warner was a well-known clairvoyant astrologist, numerologist, and particularly well-known as a palmist or a practitioner of chiromancy, from which he took his pen name, Cairo, though he would also occasionally present himself as Count uh, Louis Harmon. Uh, I don't trust the man, but uh, here is the story he tells. In Egypt, he is given a gift by a sheikh whom Cairo has cured of malaria. He returns to London quite pleased with this uh, gift, but the sentiments are not shared by his wife, who insists to get rid of the mummy's hand. Since no museum will accept it as a donation, Cairo was said to have uh, locked it away in a wall safe, where it was nearly forgotten until 1922. At that time, he happened to reopen the safe, and there was the hand. It had changed. The flesh had somehow softened, seeming as though fresh blood now ran through its veins. Cairo resolved to destroy it, choosing All Hallows' Eve as the occasion. Reading from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, he cast it into the flames of his fireplace, whereupon a great wind rushed through the house, and the specter of an Egyptian princess, a princess again, minus one hand, appeared uh, and reached into the fire to reattach the hand before disappearing. Four days later, archaeologist Howard Carter and the Earl of Carnarvon announced the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Uh, fearing for their safety after all this, Cairo dispatched a message to Carnarvon. I know now that the ancient Egyptians had knowledge and power of which today we have no comprehension. In the name of God, I beg you, take care. A few months later, Carnarvon had died a peculiar death from the tiniest of mosquito bites that happened to become infected. Cairo also claimed to have provided a prophetic warning to William Thomas Stead uh, before he met his end aboard the Titanic. <laughs> As it turns out, Stead was himself connected to the much-publicized case of the so-called unlucky mummy associated in urban legend with the Titanic sinking and later the British Museum. Uh, perhaps you have heard the stories of a cursed mummy aboard the ship, but there actually is in fact no record of a mummy amid the cargo. The source of the legend seems to be a survivor's account 
of Stead's dramatic midnight retelling of a mummy curse story two nights before the ship went down. I'll relate Stead's story shortly, but it involved a mummy back in England, not one aboard the ship. It was only through some journalistic garbling that it turned into a cursed mummy aboard the sinking ship. So this midnight unlucky mummy uh, tale seems to have been uh, earlier concocted collaboratively by Stead, who was a journalist and editor with an ear for a good story, and another Englishman, Douglas Murray, who does appear to have had some actual connection to Egyptology. Both men shared also an interest in spiritualism and therefore demonstrating the veracity of supernatural claims. As the story goes, in the 1860s, Murray served as a purchasing agent acquiring a mummy uh, in Egypt for a British client. Shortly after the transaction, Murray experienced a near-lethal shotgun misfire while hunting ducks on the Nile, with uh, other misfortunes following. And uh, then next we have the mummy arriving at the home of the buyer in England, where it causes every breakable object in the room to be destroyed. It's moved to another room, and the same mischief occurs. Other players and catastrophes may be inserted into the story, depending on the version you hear. It's unclear what's supposed to have eventually happened to the original mummy, but sometime later, Stead and Murray came uh, to the press with an update on the story. While visiting the British Museum, they said they recognized the likeness on a painted coffin lid uh, as that of their own cursed mummy, uh, creating yet another family of urban legends about spooky events in the museum, which curatorial staff, even today, are at great pains to deny. Are ancient curses real? Punishment indeed. In the name? Go and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. This is an unholy tomb. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. They mustn't touch it, Sandy. We're all doomed to die for this act of desecration. Violent death. It means death to whoever breaks Such that seal. the curse of Amun-Ra. The curse of the mummy's tomb. Pharaoh's curse. And who gave our ancient curses real? Our ancient curses real? In any case, seven years after Stead's death aboard the Titanic, the palmist Cairo has moved to Hollywood, making a name for himself, uh, telling the fortunes of the elite, uh, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Gloria Swanson, and Theda Berra, whom I mentioned earlier as the star of H. Ryder Haggard's uh, Cleopatra. Of course, uh, Hollywood of the 20s and 30s was notorious for its embrace of uh, gurus, astrologers, and the like, and also eager for things Egyptian, as the themed Egyptian theater had opened the same year as Tut's tomb was discovered. One such actress interested in these matters was Zita Johan, uh, who fervently believed in the transmigration of souls, and who, uh, while at a spiritual retreat in the mountains, even claimed to have levitated. She was therefore perfectly cast as the purported reincarnation of an Egyptian princess co-starring with Boris Karloff in 1932's The Mummy. Oddly enough, this film started out set in San Francisco with Karloff as Alessandro Cagliostro, who promoted himself to the courts of Europe as a seer and man of miracles, uh, probably much as Cairo courted Hollywood royalty. The historic Cagliostro also claimed that he had been born centuries ago. And uh, in this preliminary script, the character achieves this by injecting himself with nitrates. Luckily, Universal called in uh, one of their screenwriters for a rewrite, John Balderson, who had not only written stage adaptations of Dracula and Frankenstein, but also, uh, as a journalist, had covered the opening of King Tut's tomb. As with Tut, in the movie, there's a curse. <laughs> Karloff only appears briefly in heavy mummy makeup, rising from his sarcophagus after an archaeologist is foolish enough to read aloud the words of resurrection from the scroll of Thoth. Driven mad by the appearance of the walking mummy, he's uh, later said by one of the characters to 
have laughed until he died in a straitjacket the next year. What's the matter, man? For heaven's sakes, what is it? He, he, he went for a little walk. So we have Thoth, whom we've discussed, and the idea of the curse. We also have love between an ancient Egyptian and a contemporary mortal. It's all been set in place in previous literature. Karloff's mummy later shows up rejuvenated and assuming the identity of a significantly less ancient but still heavily made up mysterious Egyptian stranger by the name of Ardeth Bey. He attempts to show Zita Johan's character that they share an ancient love, uh, conjuring images of his past. I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. However, his plan to eternally reunite with his lover is recognized by a Van Helsing-like character, a Dr. Muller, actually played by the same actor who portrayed Van Helsing in the Lugosi film. He's going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. When her fate is all but sealed, uh, Zita, Johan, I suppose I shouldn't spoil innings if you haven't seen it, it's a bit slow and won't deliver any CGI scorpion monsters or screaming sandstorm faces, but uh, Karloff exudes a wonderfully uh, sinister presence throughout. Now, to return to Arthur Conan Doyle before we end, um, we'll never know if the screenwriters of the film were aware of it, but uh, Doyle's 1890 story, The Ring of Thoth, uh, which I mentioned earlier, uh, very much anticipates the plot of the film. The tale's narrator happens to end up locked inside the Louvre one night uh, where among the antiquities he encounters a man, uh, an Egyptian, he learns, uh, who would be the spitting image of Karloff's Ardeth Bay. There is something inhuman and supernatural about its appearance. Over the temple and the cheekbone, it was as glazed and as shiny as varnished parchment. There was no suggestion of pores. One could not fancy a drop of moisture upon that arid surface. From brow to chin, however, it was cross-hatched by a million delicate wrinkles which shot and interlaced as though nature in some Maori mood had tried how wild and intricate a pattern she could devise. The Egyptian tells his story, revealing that in ancient times he had found and consumed an elixir of eternal life and was hoping but failed to provide some to his love, Atma, before she died. And when our narrator meets him, he is standing, pining over Atma's mummy case, just as Ardeth Bay is found in the Cairo Museum, gazing lovingly at the mortal mummy whose body uh, his reincarnated love once occupied. In Doyle's case, however, the mysterious Egyptian has recently found the antidote to immortality, and speaks of joining his beloved, not as uh, eternally living earthbound mummies, but by ending his uh, centuries-long life and joining her in a proper otherworldly afterlife. There is also an unwrapping scene in Doyle's story in which we are again treated to this uh, same strange eroticism as the Egyptian removes Atma's bandages. First, a cascade of long, black, glossy tresses poured over his hands and arms. A second turn of the bandage revealed a low, white forehead with a pair of delicately arched eyebrows. A third uncovered a pair of bright, deeply fringed eyes and a straight, well-cut nose, while the fourth and last showed a sweet, full, sensitive mouth and a beautifully curved chin. There is even a fairly off-putting description of the Egyptian planting a passionate kiss on those perfectly preserved 4,000-year-old corpse lips. It's distasteful, and I suppose unless you... that's your thing, of course. So, of course, there were many cinematic follow-ups to the Karloff movie, but the uh, reincarnation melodrama becomes less important in the films made by Universal in the 1940s or hammer in the uh, 1950s and 60s. In these, the mummy does not assume some mysterious contemporary identity. He remains very much a mummy and more or less is relegated to the role of assassin, serving the desires of a wicked Egyptian priest. Well, uh, Doyle has us covered on that plot line too. His 1892 story, Lot Number 249, 
named for the auction number under which the mummy of the story was purchased, uh, tells of an Oxford student who reanimates a mummy and sends him to punish his enemies. The method of reanimation is not clear, though a scroll, perhaps anticipating the scroll of Thoth, is mentioned, as well as mysterious dried leaves, perhaps anticipating the... You revivify the 1940s mummy. The story was adapted as one of the segments in a 1990 horror comedy anthology, Tales from the Dark Side, in which a young Steve Buscemi plays the student. Grow, O light. Rise, O light. Come forth, O light. Open his eyes. So, in the end of the story, which now happens to coincide with the end of our show, The mummy, while attacking the narrator, is destroyed, and Wilkinson has one last grisly scene narrated by Doyle. In frantic haste, he caught up the knife and hacked at the figure of the mummy, ever glancing round to see the eye and weapon of his terrible visitor bent upon him. The creature crackled and snapped under every stab of the keen blade. A thick yellow dust rose up from it, Spices and dried essences rained down upon the floor. Suddenly, with a rending crack, its backbone snapped asunder, and it fell, a brown heap of sprawling limbs upon the floor. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue listening when we start our new fall and winter season in October. If you are particularly eager, I suggest checking the website for specific updates on what episodes are coming and when, or subscribing. (laughs) On our website, boneandsickle.com, no ampersand or punctuation. Uh, You can also find extensive show notes with images and media links to uh, music and films you've heard in this episode or that were mentioned. And there's also a link to our Patreon page where you can support the work I will be continuing uh, nonstop through September. Donation levels start as low as $1 per month. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, uh, the show soundscapes, and other audio, as well as my Krampus book, and a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Uh, on the website, you'll also find links to our Facebook group and Twitter page. We greatly appreciate all your endorsements on social media, the likes, the comments, the retweets, reposts. A big thank you to recent Patreon donors, Corey, uh, Brendan Labor, uh, Morgan Corbeau, Robert Espy, Jonathan Holt, and Shauna Bracken. The show, as always, is written and produced by me, Al Reitenauer. Wilkinson is played by the inimitable Rick Gallagher. Thanks for listening, and see you in October.